you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 is where we're going to be starting in just a few minutes. But before we get there, I just want to ask a question. Who are you? It's a question we often ask people when we're meeting them for the first time or we want to get to know them better. We ask you, who are you sorts of questions, right? Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? What do you like to do with your time? What do you do for a living? Where'd you go to school? And all these questions are good for helping us to get to know someone, to understand them better. When we talk to kids, we may ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or if you meet a recent graduate, you'll ask them, what are their plans for the future? When you strip everything away and you ask the question, who are you? How would you answer that? Really, it's a question about identity. And there's many businesses and marketing in our world today which would want us to identify with that business, right? You think of all kinds of advertising campaigns where the idea is, if you're a real Texan, then you'll, you'll shop at this type of store, you'll eat this fast food, right? There's competing visions about the ideal future. And some people want wealth. Others want a meaningful and purposeful life, and that's where they find their identity. And some want to be unique and special. They want to be the person to do something for the first time. When you look back at a life well-lived, what will that look like? In Colossians, we're going to find that Paul has a lot to say about a life well-lived. And he continues to build on that as we finish out the book. And that will take several more sermons. But he doesn't tell us just to get a good job or to get an education. Paul's approach is this. We're to find our identity in Christ. So how would you answer that question, who are you? In chapter 3, which is full of application to the Christian life, he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And in today's passage, he gives us this phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in writing to the Colossians, Paul wants to shore up their confidence in Christ and their confidence in the gospel. That's what he's doing here. He wants to establish their faith as a bulwark against these false teachings that we're going to be Moving into in the rest of chapter 2, we're not quite there yet. But these false teachers, they would claim their own superiority, their own wisdom, their own gospel. At the expense of the genuine Christian message. And so Christ in you, the hope of glory, it's a key phrase from this week's passage. And it tells us two things. First, there's the reality. Christ in you. Right? That's what we need to know and understand. And then there's this correlation that goes with it of the end goal, the hope of glory. It's where you're headed. And so the two are tied together. Our identification with Christ, with an emphasis on the future, the future hope, the end of all things, when God will set everything right. So do we really believe this? As Christians, we're to see our own lives bound with Christ. And we're to personally identify with him. And the implication is that 
identification with Christ is bound together with our future, the hope of glory. So what does it mean to identify with Christ? What do I mean by that when I use that phrase? How would you answer that question, who are you? Right, the, the catechism that we just read speaks to this very well. And if we see our own life with respect to the gospel, then we should ask, how should we live? How should we respond to life's challenges? What's important and what's not? And we see our future with respect to God's restoration of the world. And so the passage talks a lot about where we're headed. So Paul is convinced that our identification with Christ is essential to where we're headed. He's so convinced that he's willing to endure suffering and to make personal sacrifices to see the gospel go forth. So I want to read through this passage for us now. Colossians verse 1, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter to the Colossians, where Paul is focusing so fully on the richness of the gospel message so that they would be so firmly planted, so firmly rooted that false teaching would not be able to dissuade them, to disrupt them, to challenge their faith. But Lord, I I pray that you would help us, help us in our weakness to, to receive your word, to hear it, and to see that our only hope in life and death is to be one with you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so a little background just to remind us, because it's been a few weeks since we've been in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 opens with this prayer for the church. So Paul prays with intentionality for them. He prays with purpose for their future, specifically that they would grow in maturity and their faith in Christ. And so it's a very gospel-oriented prayer that Paul opens with. And then he moves in to talk about the supremacy of Christ. He talks about the supremacy of Christ over all creation. Now, Christ is supreme over salvation. And that Christ 
is sufficient for your salvation. And now he's adding a third layer to this. What he's doing is he's building an argument. It doesn't seem like it because he's not just arguing with the false teachers. He hasn't even really brought them up in a straightforward way yet. But he's laying a foundation here. And so now he's laying a third layer to this foundation. He's connecting individuals and their faith in Christ with the supremacy of Christ. He's saying, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so the gospel meets us personally. It comes down to each of us. It's not impersonal. In fact, we are united with Christ. And so if we see our unity with Christ and the internal impact of that, then false teaching is not going to have a place to stand. It's going to amount to nothing. And so what we're going to see in this passage, I flipped it around a little bit because I think the first half of the passage focuses a little more on this future hope of glory. And then the second half of the passage focuses a little more on Christ in you. So we're going to cover the hope of glory first. But verses 24 through 27, we're going to talk about this hope of glory, which is keeping the end in view. Right? And then we're going to talk about finding our identity in Christ as we finish out the passage. So let me reread the first few verses. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul opens in verse 24 with his rejoicing in his sufferings. Right? Paul knew that his preaching of the gospel would bring personal suffering. Yet he did it for the sake of Christ's body, the church, he says. He believed that Christians can expect suffering in this life for the sake of Christ. In fact, we went through 2 Corinthians in Sunday school this spring, and there's a subtext there to 2 Corinthians with shared suffering. And that comes up again and again throughout that book. And just opening of 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. For if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also will share in our comfort. Right? What's strange to our ear is that Paul would rejoice in suffering. Right? We run from suffering, don't we? Right? We avoid uncomfortable conversations. We avoid them at all costs. And suffering is presented as the worst of evils in our world. So how can Paul rejoice in suffering? Suffering is described in this passage is for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Specifically, it's doing what will benefit those who will hear the message and believe. And so this suffering comes in the course of fulfilling God's purpose and plan for the proclamation of the gospel and bringing people to Christ. It's part of the upheaval that will bring an end to the evil world. 
the sin in the world that is so prevalent in this present age. So there's also a future focus to this, right? Paul, in his writings, we see a future orientation to the proclamation of the gospel and the establishment of the church. If we're truly suffering for the sake of the gospel, can we see our own suffering in this context? Can we rejoice? Can we look forward to the hope of glory? Now, Paul also says in verse 24 that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So that's a a tough one, right? What does that mean? And some might say that this is about salvation. Well, that's confusing, right? If, If Christ is sufficient for our salvation, which we've already seen a few verses back, Uh, How is Paul filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, I don't think this is about salvation. I think it's talking about something else. Now, some people would say that maybe it's about the church because there is a concept of union with Christ here in the passage. And so there's an idea of mystical union between Christ and his body. And so there's some idea of shared suffering there. And I just read this other passage from Paul that talks about shared suffering among the church. Uh, I don't think it's just about mystical union, though. I think that it's really um, pointing back to this future orientation of the passage. It's focused on the future. right? So Paul knows that certain things must take place before the end. And this includes suffering and tribulation for the church. And these must take place before Christ returns. So even as Paul fulfills the Great Commission... He knows that he's going to experience suffering. He suffered at both the hands of the Jews, who rejected a message that would include the Gentiles. And then he also suffered at the hands of the Gentiles, who rejected the Jewish religion and feared economic loss for themselves. He was taking it from both sides. But for Paul, this is all focused in the proclamation of the gospel, the gospel going out, the gospel reaching the ends of the earth, and the, the change that will come when Christ restores the world in the end. Right? This is all tied together. This is a bigger plan of God. And so salvation is fitting into this bigger plan and mes- message. So trials point to sin in the fallen world. And they make us think about the future and the needed restoration of the world. that can only come through Christ. And so we should have realistic expectations concerning the fallen world. Many in our day don't like the idea of sin, right? They want to find some way to deny its existence. So one way that they do that is just to outright deny it, right? But that's really not consistent with the world as it is. It's a made-up world that we don't really live in, right? To deny the very existence of sin. It's a false narrative. Another is just to lessen the sinfulness of sin. To say that it's not that bad, right? To justify it in some way. And some go as far as calling what is evil good. They say what is destructive in our lives is actually beneficial. In fact, you should own it and be proud of it. And they may be able to lessen someone's guilt for a time, but that won't make things right and good, right? We can't escape the reality of sin. We can become acclimated to the sin of a fallen world where we we don't feel the weight of it, but there will be a day when the weight of it hits you with full force. At some point, the weight of sin will hit us right in the face. 
And so people struggle with this problem of evil, don't they? Right? Especially when it hits them right in front of them. And, and they say, why would God do this? But Paul says in Romans, he has a different view, right? He says, who will set me free from this body of death? He realizes his own sin. He's looking forward to the day when Christ will return to set all things right. And so the good news is that Christ will set all things right. The end goal is now revealed in the gospel. That's where we're headed in verses 25 and 26. Paul says that he's a minister He's a steward, a servant of the church and the gospel. And this administration, this stewardship, it's a mystery that's hidden for the ages. It is now revealed. It implies this future theme, right, of the passage. A future when everything will be made right. And it's tied to the proclamation of the gospel. And so Paul's gospel ministry took great effort. It took much endurance. But it was worth it because of the importance of that work. So in light of who Christ is, Paul had to make the gospel fully known, no matter the personal cost. And if that's true, then why did he use this language of a mystery? The word mystery was used in the ancient world in reference to philosophy, literature. It was used in certain religions. Some of you may know about the mystery cults of the Roman era. And uh, they had some hidden secret knowledge and you didn't see all the revealed truth of the mystery cult until you were initiated into it. Now, I'm not sure if that's what Paul's referring to here. Probably not. But even if it was what he was referring to, he's really turning it on its head, right? The gospel is completely different because it's been freely revealed to everyone. It it may be a a mystery held for the ages and how God is going to bring about the restoration of the world, but now it's been revealed. And now you're accountable, right, for for what you have heard in the proclamation of the gospel. So Paul is a minister, a stewardship of this mystery. And it's a mystery to the world, even if with veiled eyes they do not see and understand it fully. We see that idea in 2 Corinthians as well. But Paul digs into the substance of the gospel message here in this section. He goes further than just saying that Christ died for you. And we'll see that he is emphasizing our union with Christ. And that becomes clear as we go on in the letter. But for now, what do we mean by union with Christ? You're brought into his people. You have an inheritance with the saints. Our life is now bound with him. We have died to self and we now live with him, for him, through him. The point is that Christ is in you and this brings with it the hope of glory. Think of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Or sorry, uh, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? The, um, the end goal comes to you through participation in Christ. Right? That, that's the idea. So uh, verse 27, it moves on to the, this idea of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right? 
right? It's now made known to the Gentiles, he says in verse 27. What's been made known? The riches of his glory. So Paul is reaffirming a key point that salvation has come to the world. And this idea of union with Christ is found in other passages where Paul uses the word mystery. It's used multiple times in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but here I'm just going to read for you a, a parallel passage where the thought is conveyed. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret wisdom and hidden wisdom from God which God decreed before the ages for his glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So here we have a mystery that points to the end of all things. Right? Though he uses the language of something hidden in reality, it's hidden no longer because the gospel is proclaimed to all people. And so the point is that there's something reserved for God's people, right? That the world doesn't understand or appreciate. The benediction of Romans at the end of chapter 16 also has this thought. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. A couple takeaways, right? Christ is made known to all, right? Christ is for both Jews and Gentiles. And this plan of God, it was not understood before, but now it is understood. Right? So salvation is a part of this bigger plan of God, which has been prepared for us. And been prepared for ages past. Right? So we praise God for his wisdom in this. His plan is revealed in his time, and we should rejoice to see it coming to fruition. This is the hope of glory. But that hope of glory, it's bound up in the person of Christ and our union with Christ. Christ in you brings the hope of glory. And this leaves us with an urgent need. We must find our identity in Christ. Read again, starting in verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right, this can be contrasted with the need for mediators, right, from Hebrews, the idea of Christ is superior to angels, 
Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Christ is in us. Christ is the guarantee of our hope. We have no need of a better mediator. And so Christ is our salvation. Christ is given for us, even Gentiles. Christ is in us. And he's with us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Christ is among us in the church as much as his presence is with each of us. And Christ is our life, our identity. Yes, our hope is in Christ. So those who possess Christ will inherit the benefits of being part of the new covenant. Right? Christ, our hope, our confidence in the future. And so a few things to know from this section. First, just finishing out chapter 1. Know that God's riches are made available through Christ. Him we proclaim, Paul says. This message rests in a person. It's not in a system of rules and regulations. In fact, he's going to contrast that as we get into chapter 2 in future sermons. But what is Paul doing? He's admonishing. He's teaching. He's confronting and instructing. Right? He says, to present everyone mature in Christ. So there's an element of completion here. Fullness. Maturity. Right? This message is for everyone, he says, though. Right? Paul endeavors to present everyone mature in Christ. So these two things go together. It's a common misconception that our salvation is just positional. Right? Uh, standing before God. The reality is that it impacts our life and our future. That's Christ in you. Right? It's impacting your life and your future. The hope of glory. And so Paul warns everyone and teaches everyone proclaiming Christ. And his, dry, his driving passion is to see the gospel go forth because it's so important. It's not just a personal narrative for life. Right? So much of what you hear of something that really spoke to me. Right? If somebody says that, they'll say, oh, it's a personal narrative for life, essentially. It speaks to me. Right? No, this is not just a personal narrative for life. It's, it's not just a piece of who you are. It's not just a piece of nostalgia for what you remember about growing up and warm memories of, of what it was like for you. It's not just a sense of nationalism, of identity with what everyone else is doing. No, Paul urges us to seek a radically different frame of mind. This is the story that binds together all of history. And all of creation is the story that points to the new creation. It's what the new creation is about. It's what the new covenant is about. And it's our privilege not just to receive the benefits of that, but to participate in it. This is union with Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Paul struggles with all his energy, he says. That was Paul's driving aim in life. And he also recognizes where that energy came from, right? This energy that he works within me, Paul says. And so through Christ, God's resources are made available to us. So the story reaches down into the lives of individuals. It affects us. Hearts are encouraged. That's Paul's aim here. Knit together in love and focused on Christ. And Colossians has this high Christology and Paul focuses on who Christ is. But he builds on that. It goes much further than just who Christ is. Paul establishes the supremacy of Christ as a bulwark against false teaching. 
And that's what he's doing. He starts with his prayer for them. He moves on to talk about the supremacy of Christ. And then he establishes their union with Christ. And as he, he builds this argument so that he can confront the false teachers, right? He wants to firmly establish them in their faith. So they have a firm foundation in their faith in Christ. And that firm foundation, that high Christology, it pours forth into life. It pours forth in this bond of unity that's shared among Christ's church. And we'll see that expressed more fully as we get into chapter 3. But for now, know that God makes his wisdom known through Christ. And that wisdom is closely tied to our identification with Christ and with one another. So know that God's wisdom is made known through Christ. That's going to take us into chapter 2 here. First, Paul says that he struggles. Paul experienced turmoil for what the Colossian church was going through. There was a threat to the gospel. And so Paul experienced turmoil over that. And so his purpose was to encourage their hearts, to exhort them to follow Christ. And having been knit together in love, this is the gospel applied to life. We see this in Colossians later on, but I want to just show you a parallel passage. Ephesians Chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may, be, <clears throat> may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Right? So Christ's love is the basis for our unity and life together. Christ in you is a common bond that we share, and it pours forth into life. And Paul summarizes this with hearts being encouraged, right? As we learn to love. And Paul also then goes on to talk about wanting them to reach the full assurance of understanding and of knowledge. And he ties this to Christ. Who, who is the embodiment of wisdom and knowledge? Paul says that it's Christ. Right? So he wants them to grow in the knowledge of this mystery, which is Christ, and grow to maturity, which is this goal to truly know Christ. Paul wants to firmly establish their faith as he moves on to address these issues that are coming up. And so those Issues are what we'll turn to. I just want to point out that he is building a case here. In verse 123, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he summarizes that section on the supremacy of Christ, pointing forward to where he's headed. And then in the two verses that I cut short in this section, verses 4 and 5, it's transitioning again and summarizing. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So he's summarizing what we just talked about this week. And he's saying, he's, he's saying this so that you might not be deluded with somebody's argument. right? For though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Because that's what Paul's doing here. He's trying to build their faith in Christ. So be firmly established in your faith. Right? For Paul, Christ is the center of the Christian life. 
Our life is bound with him. We are to identify with him. And as we understand God's purpose in bringing a new creation, we should cling even closer to Christ. So when you're asked, who are you? Can you say, I belong to Christ? In verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, in whom this knowledge rests, right? The knowledge is in Christ. If you want to know God, then know Christ. So that's part of what this false teaching was presenting is some superior knowledge. And he's responding to him. If you want to know knowledge, know Christ. Treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. True wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ. And um, this is almost a repeat from the prayer back in 1.9 where he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so Paul often begins his letters with this teaching and then moves to application. And there's a pattern there in Colossians with chapters 1 and 2 and then application in 3 and 4. And there's some basic wisdom in that structure. But I think we should also see in this passage how linked the two are. This knowledge and wisdom of Christ is linked to the Christian life in full display. And so they each inform the other. You really can't divorce the two. Um, so know this, that faith in Christ brings the full resources of God to us, right? and that wisdom and knowledge of God should strengthen our faith, and it's only found in Christ. And so there's an application to the situation of the Colossian heresy here. This substitute and false knowledge was being pushed upon them, and Paul is answering that if it's knowledge that you seek, look to Christ. The heresy claimed to offer a better knowledge. But Paul is saying that all knowledge and wisdom that pertain to salvation is found in Christ. And so God's plan is revealed in the gospel. But this fact is not just knowledge for us. Our identity and our future are bound up with this truth. It's not just knowledge, it's reality. So where does this leave you? Do you know Christ? Is your life bound with his. There is no better gospel. Your life, your future, it's either bound in death or it's bound to Christ. So don't look to your performance to attain favor with God. Don't think that your status before God is found in your knowledge or how well you execute your life. Uh, You can have an extensive knowledge, but be going to hell. Right? You can look like you have everything together and not even know your own future. Right? So don't just try harder and sin less. Seek a radical change that can only come from a new life in Christ. So why do we hear this so often and we don't respond? Right? Some of you may have heard this many times before. And how often must you hear it before you respond to the message of the gospel? This mystery has been revealed. And your only hope is to be found in Christ. And that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So do you have hope? 
If you do not, then I pray that you would hear that message this morning and respond and place your faith in Christ. And as Paul says, be firmly established in your faith. So when someone asks you, who are you? How would you answer that? Are you able to answer, I belong to Christ? This is the mystery hidden for the ages past, and it has now been revealed. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.